Chapter 5 of Fifty Years a Detective, 35 Real Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fifty Years a Detective, 35 Real Detective Stories by Thomas Furlong. The Big Cotton Swindle. Subtitled tragic ending of a big case on which a great deal of real detective work had been done the cotton swindle occurred at sherman texas on the texas and pacific railroad early in the fall of eighteen eighty three it was in the cotton shipping season and sherman was a point from which a very large amount of cotton was shipped annually it being the principal shipping point or outlet for one of the largest cotton producing districts in the state for this reason, the eastern cotton buyers and cotton mill owners were represented by agents at these shipping points. These agents were really brokers. It was the practice of these brokers, as soon as they had purchased cotton, to have it delivered at once to the railroad company for shipment, when they would receive from the railroad company's agent a bill of lading, setting forth the number and weight of each bale. This bill of lading, when signed by the railroad agent, was negotiable at any bank in the cotton-producing district. The bank would take the bill of lading, allowing the depositor 90% cash on the face value, and would hold 10% back until the exact value of the cotton was ascertained by the proper officials. The practice of cashing these bills of lading was then general in the cotton-growing country, and, I presume, it is at the present time. It was early in the month of January, 1884, when I was suddenly called to the office of Captain C. G. Warner, who was then general auditor for the Gould Railway System. The Texas and Pacific was one of many Gould lines. I occupied the position of chief special agent for that system. On my arrival at Captain Warner's office, he informed me that he had just received from Sherman, Texas, a long telegraph message from one of his traveling auditors which stated that a large amount of cotton which had been shipped from that station had undoubtedly been diverted in transit, as the cotton had not reached its proper destination. Captain Warner instructed me to go to Sherman at once, where I would find the traveling auditor, Mr. Finby, and make a thorough investigation. I left St. Louis on the first train, and arrived at Sherman in due time, where I found Mr. Finby, who informed me that the company's agent in charge at Sherman— whom I may call number four, had left there on the Saturday night previous, since which time not one word had been heard from him. He further stated that number four had told his assistant on Saturday evening that he was going to take a run down to Galveston on personal business and expected to return on the following Monday. It then being Wednesday, and number four not having returned, Mr. Finby had become aroused and wired the head of his department at St. Louis, which accounted for my appearance in Sherman. I at once began my investigation with a view of locating number four, the missing agent. I remained in and about Sherman several days, during which time the traveling auditor was busily engaged with some of his assistants in auditing and trying to straighten out the accounts of the station. In the meantime, telegraph messages of inquiry were pouring into Sherman from parties in New York, Philadelphia, Fall River, Massachusetts, and Providence, Rhode Island. These parties had purchased and paid for large quantities of cotton, the total amount aggregating $121,000, and they wanted to know why they had not received it. Messages of this kind had been pouring into Sherman for a month or six weeks prior to the time Mr. Finby had been called there. The officers of the railroad became alarmed, believing from the facts learned up to this time that the cotton for which the eastern buyers were inquiring had been shipped and had been diverted and probably stolen. If this were true, the railroad company would be responsible for the loss of the cotton to the buyers and would probably have to pay additional damages. Thus, the loss of this cotton was a serious matter for the company. After I had worked at Sherman for about ten days, as hard and earnestly as I had ever worked on a case in my life, I succeeded in obtaining information that led me to believe that there were three other men connected with number four, the missing agent, in this swindle. 
i had also succeeded in locating the family and friends of number four and the other three suspects whose names i withhold for the reason that some of them were connected with respectable families and have near relatives living to-day who were in no way responsible for the wrongdoing of these men and ought not to be subjected to the humiliation which the publication of these names might inflict upon them during my investigation i learned that one of these men whom in mentioning i will call number one had a brother living in new orleans i will call the other two confederates number two and number three withholding their names for the reasons i have already given i had decided to go to new orleans direct from sherman and there quietly investigate the brother of number one i had also telegraphed to my office at st louis missouri instructing george w herbert one of my assistants to meet me in new orleans which he did we located number one's brother in new orleans very easily and after i had previously obtained information that number one's wife might be stopping temporarily with her brother-in-law's family who were living in a large and rather pretentious mansion in that city i began to watch the mansion for the purpose of learning if possible whether or not number one's wife was staying there i had a photograph of number one and also of his wife she was a beautiful woman she was born and raised in the state of tennessee where her mother and other near relatives resided i had learned that a man answering the description of number one in all respects had registered at the then leading hotel of sherman under the name of j d dillard jr this man had reached the hotel at a late hour at night was assigned to a room and remained in it all the following day ordering his meals sent to the room explaining to the hotel people that he was ill during the day number four called at the hotel quietly visited the room occupied by dillard where he number four had remained an hour or more he went to dillard's room without making any inquiries at the office merely consulting the register dillard who was really number one left his room about midnight the following night and took a northbound train from sherman nobody had seen the supposed dillard during the time of his stay at sherman except the night clerk who had not noticed him particularly when he assigned him to his room and a chambermaid a mulatto who had charge of the room of number one or dillard as he called himself had waited on him while he was there she had become familiar with his features and stated to me that she would know him on sight any place she described dillard accurately after which i exhibited number one's photograph she instantly identified it as a good picture of mr dillard this is what caused me to place number one's brother's house in new orleans under surveillance i also traced dillard from sherman texas to emporia kansas where the photographs of himself and wife were identified by the proprietor of the hotel and the employees there at which the dillards had stopped for a period of a month prior to dillard's recent visit to sherman mrs dillard had remained at emporia during her husband's absence and he joined her at emporia on his return from sherman and they departed from there immediately for parts unknown i traced them to topeka kansas where the trail was lost my assistant and myself kept up a steady watch on the home of the brother of number one in new orleans day and night for about three weeks we divided the time into eight-hour watches one of us sleeping while the other was on duty it was one of the most difficult tasks of the kind i had ever undertaken for the reason that i was personally known to the chief of police of new orleans who was a friend of mine i was also known to a number of police detectives of that city and owing to the prominence of the family and connections of number one i did not deem it expedient to meet any of the police authorities as by doing so i of course would feel compelled to explain to them the cause of my presence in their city i had no doubt that some of them would render me all the assistance they could but i was afraid that some of them might talk about my presence in the city and the friends of number one might hear of it and thereby be the means of hindering me in my efforts to locate the whereabouts of number one for this reason it required more vigilance on my part to keep out of the sight of the police who knew me than what i was bestowing to the watching of the house in question 
during the long vigil many humorous incidents occurred one morning after we had been on watch several days i hit upon a plan to find if there were any women about the big house as we had seen none up to this time hoping thereby to locate the wife of number one a few blocks down the street a couple of good-looking young italian girls were playing a hand organ the instrument was a fine new one and of exceedingly loud tone i quietly bargained for their services to take up their station in front of the house i was watching telling them to play there as long as the police would permit them the music and the performance of the monkeys brought several women from the house to the veranda but to my disappointment the much-wanted woman was not among them the performance was repeated several mornings with the same results mrs dillard was not in the house as we afterwards learned meanwhile the brother a gentleman of leisure was in the habit of strolling each morning from his house to the post office where he usually mailed several letters he'd always drop these letters in the general receptacle which had an opening in the main corridor at least a foot in length and three inches wide and led to a large box in the basement below the main floor this box would hold probably a wagon load of letters and packages and when a letter was dropped in this mass it was almost impossible to find it again number one's brother was a man middle-aged rather slow in his movements and very deliberate in everything that he did he carried these letters in an inside pocket of his dress coat and walked with a cane he would approach the general mailbox placing his cane under his left arm and carefully removing his snug fitting glove from his right hand would take the letters consisting of three or more and in an exasperatingly deliberate and slow manner deposit them in the box with the other mail he would watch them until they had disappeared down the chute and out of sight this operation was repeated by him daily except sundays during the three weeks and witnessed each time by either herbert or myself and had grown very tiresome to both of us finally i concluded that we would prepare two letters and address them to ourselves stamp them properly and then cover the backs of each envelope with a thick coating of mucilage herbert was given one of the letters i keeping the other herbert placed himself on one side of the chute while i took my position on the other side each of us being some distance away from the receptacle the main corridor of the post office in the afternoon was generally crowded with people passing to and fro between the hours of ten and twelve o'clock for this reason we attracted no special attention we knew about the time that number one's brother was in the habit of visiting the post office and therefore we were not kept waiting but a few moments for his appearance he approached the mailbox in his usual manner and was as painfully deliberate as he had been on previous occasions and after he had gone through the customary maneuvers but before he had time to drop the three letters from his hand herbert rushed up to the receptacle from the left and i from the right and we both reached out our hands at the same time with the letters we held having the mucilaged surface in such a way that they came in contact with the three letters he had had in his hand and forcing the letters into the chute with ours the mucilage sticking the bunch of five letters together all slid into the chute number one's brother became very indignant and muttered something about rudeness and awkwardness i attempted a hasty apology and disappeared around the corner to the office of the assistant postmaster whose acquaintance i had previously formed i told him that i had just deposited two letters in the main repository and that i had discovered that i had placed the letters in the wrong envelopes and wished to get them so that i might rectify my mistake he at once conducted me to the main mailbox below where they were at least a half wagon loads of letters and general mail matter i at once found the bunch of five letters which were stuck together with the mucilage and in separating them had ample time to note the different addresses on the three envelopes mailed by number one's brother one of these was addressed to a relative of mrs dillard to her home in tennessee another was addressed to another brother of number one who resided in atlanta georgia the third letter was addressed to j d dillard jr ocean springs mississippi 
I knew of the relatives in Tennessee and of the brother in Atlantic Georgia, and also that J.D. Diller, Jr. was the man I wanted to locate, and for the first time learned that he was at Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Ocean Springs was then a small winter resort located on the Louisville and Nashville Railroad between Montgomery and New Orleans. It was also a harbor on Mobile Bay and near Biloxi, Mississippi. Upon the receipt of this information, I went to Ocean Springs, Mississippi, arriving there about midnight on the night that I had seen the letter addressed by number one's brother to this place. There I found that the post office of the town was kept in a grocery store, which was part of the principal hotel of the town. I learned that the landlord, who was a very genial, clever man, and proprietor of the grocery store, was postmaster. I quietly showed him the photograph of number one and his wife, and he immediately identified them as Mr. and Mrs. Dillard, Jr. He told me that Dillard had represented himself to him as a rich iron manufacturer from Chattanooga, Tennessee, that his wife was in ill health, and that they had been there for the past month or more and had rented a beautiful cottage known as the Montgomery Cottage, where they were living. This cottage was situated on a small peninsula which extended from the mainland, dividing Biloxi Bay from Mobile Bay. It was about two miles from the post office at Ocean Springs. The positive and ready manner in which the postmaster identified the photographs satisfied me beyond any doubt that I had succeeded in locating number one. I gave the postmaster to understand that number one had fallen heir to a sum of money and property, and that neither he nor his wife had become aware of the fact, and that I was very desirous of appraising him of his good fortune as a surprise, and before doing so, I desired to have all necessary papers prepared, which would require a week or ten days, and, therefore, I was anxious to have the matter kept profound secret until everything was ready. The postmaster readily promised me that he would not mention the matter to any person until I gave him permission to do so, and after making these arrangements I felt perfectly safe in not arresting number one until I had secured the proper papers authorizing the same. It was necessary for me to obtain requisition papers from the governors of Mississippi and Texas. It would take about eight or ten days to accomplish this, as proper complaint had to be lodged at Sherman, Texas, request for the requisition had to be sent from Sherman to Austin, Texas, and the request of the governor of Texas to the governor of Mississippi for the extradition papers at Jackson, Mississippi, where the agent for the state of Texas had to appear in person to receive the papers. I had myself appointed as the agent for the state of Texas. At the conclusion of my understanding with the postmaster of Ocean Springs, I took a night train to New Orleans, where I met George Herbert, and instructed him to go on the first train to Ocean Springs, and on arriving there to represent himself as an invalid and to act the part. He was naturally thin and had a sallow complexion, usually without any color. He represented himself as having just passed through a severe attack of rheumatism, and claimed that he had been advised by his physician to come to Ocean Springs, where he should spend at least a month during his convalescence. He equipped himself with two heavy walking canes, which he carried continuously during his stay at Ocean Springs, and while he made good progress walking, he seemed to bystanders to do so with some difficulty but the balmy climate of the resort seemed to benefit him greatly, and he appeared to improve daily while there. He was instructed by me to meander around and to get to the Montgomery Cottage, providing, of course, if he could succeed in so doing without arousing any suspicion, and if he did succeed in getting inside of the cottage, that he was to make a diagram of the place and surroundings, which Herbert could do nicely as he was a good draftsman. He succeeded admirably. He formed the acquaintance of number one, whom he met at the post office on the second day after his arrival. He also met him again the following day at the same place, when number one gave him an invitation to come over to the cottage and take a sail on the bay, as he, number one, had a very nice sailing yacht, which he kept anchored in front of the cottage. Herbert accepted the invitation and visited the cottage the following day, when number one introduced him to his wife, mother-in-law, and brother-in-law who happened to be at the cottage making a visit. 
he belonged in tennessee herbert was also introduced to a young woman about thirty years of age who was rather good-looking a brunette and of medium size this woman was introduced to him under an assumed name as we learned within a few days thereafter that she was really the wife of the missing agent herbert was invited to luncheon at the cottage and took a short sail with number one number one's wife and the brunette lady before mentioned the yacht was a schooner rigged of about twenty tons burden and was skilfully manned by a man about thirty-five years of age black curly hair a little bald about five feet five or six inches in height weighing probably one hundred and thirty or thirty-five pounds dark complexioned and inclined to be slender hollow-cheeked and had somewhat of a consumptive appearance herbert was not introduced to this man by his host but thought nothing of the matter believing the sailing master who was always in uniform to be simply an employee of number one herbert made a good diagram of the interior of the cottage as well as the entrances and the grounds and outbuildings after that he made daily visits to the cottage when the weather permitted the occupants seeming to enjoy and encourage his visits he had made arrangements with a livery stable for the services of an old but gentle horse and an old-fashioned buggy in which he drove around every day herbert forwarded the diagram to me along with his daily reports during my absence from ocean springs all this time i was busily engaged in procuring the necessary papers and making arrangements to effect the arrest of both number one and number four as upon receipt of herbert's accurate description of the sailing master of the yacht i had become satisfied that the sailing master was none other than number four the much-wanted agent in due time i procured the papers and proceeded to canton mississippi which was the county seat for ocean springs i there found sheriff clark of that county as sheriff he was commanded in the requisition papers to render me as agent for the state of texas all assistance i needed in making the arrests i found sheriff clark to be a fine affable gentleman of the quote unquote old school he was an ex-confederate captain having served through the civil war had been elected sheriff of his county at the close of that conflict and had succeeded himself in office up to the time of which i write i requested the sheriff to go with me himself and furnish one of his deputies we left canton which was about twenty miles north of ocean springs about ten o'clock at night and arrived at a station five miles north of springs an hour later where we left the train as we did not deem it safe to get off the train in ocean springs i had been informed by herbert with whom i was in daily communication that number one's brother-in-law visited the depot at ocean springs at night so as to see everybody who got off the night trains at that station he also stated that all passenger trains passing that station were seen by some person connected with the cottage i omitted stating heretofore that both number one and number four were good telegraph operators and herbert while inspecting the premises had noticed two tiny copper wires running into the cottage and had followed them from the cottage to the louisville and nashville railroad and later discovered that these wires were connected with the commercial wire of the western union telegraph company that ran between new orleans and the north he also found that they had a telegraph office fixed up in one of the rooms of the cottage where they could find out all that was passing over the wires of the western union company and take their ease the peninsula upon which the cottage was situated was thickly covered with pine and cedar trees and the wires were entirely hidden and could not have been discovered by any person unless one who was engaged as herbert was so that these gentlemen could while away their time listening to what was going over the wires after leaving the train sheriff clark his deputy and myself leisurely walked down the tracks to within a quarter of a mile of ocean springs and then making a detour around the station we reached the peninsula south from ocean springs at which point i had arranged to meet herbert it began raining the evening before we had left canton and continued to rain all night it was in the month of february and was a cold and chilly rain the night was inky dark 
when we reached the peninsula we were sheltered by the dense foliage of the trees and we approached the cottage to within about one thousand feet and then decided to remain quietly among the trees until we could see daylight begin to appear in the east at the first appearance of daylight herbert and myself reconnoitred circling the cottage he going one way and i the other we found that every one was apparently asleep we then went back and reported to sheriff clark and his deputy we surrounded the place herbert and the deputy covering the rear of the cottage and the sheriff and myself going to the front door and rapping for admission which was denied after we had rapped for admission we could hear the window shutters being pushed open and the inmates peered out of the windows and discovered that the place was surrounded or rather guarded on each side finally sheriff clark told the occupants that unless they opened the door that we would force it after some parleying the front door was opened the door was a double door and only one half of it was opened and very suddenly number one's brother-in-law a very tall and slender individual appeared in the open door with a double-barreled shotgun in his hands but before he had time to raise the gun to a shooting position he found himself covered with two double-barreled guns one in the hands of the sheriff and the other in my hand upon being ordered to drop the gun he did so promptly the sheriff took possession of him and i started down the wide hall which ran directly through the center of the cottage as i was passing the second door from the front door number one stepped out of the room into the hall with a pistol in his hand i recognized him and promptly arrested him i said to him where is number four he answered in the room across the hall i went to the room indicated and rapped but was refused admission i then forced the door and found number four standing in the middle of the room partly dressed after some trouble with number four and his wife we took them all to ocean springs we walked over there a distance of about two miles it was breakfast time when we reached there and the rain had stopped we went to the hotel and got something to eat and the landlord learned for the first time the true nature of the surprise that i had in store for number one there was an early train to new orleans and herbert and i took the two prisoners and left on this train for that city i telegraphed ahead to have a carriage meet us outside of new orleans and we left the train a short distance from that city here we entered the carriage which conveyed us to the ferry boat at new orleans we took the ferry and went across to algiers our object in doing this was that i wished to avoid newspaper notoriety the newspaper men we were sure to meet in the main station at new orleans had we gone there at algiers we boarded a southern pacific train for houston texas at houston we took a houston and texas central train which took us through to dallas texas the prisoners were lodged in jail before the newspapers had mentioned the capture or arrest for the reason that i knew that there were two others connected with the swindle who resided in dallas and had not yet been arrested who were not even suspected of having any connection with the swindle or any other crime by the people of dallas we arrived at dallas at night with the prisoners the following morning the chief of police jim arnold and myself picked up and arrested the other two accomplices these men were hebrews one of them had been a respectable and prominent cotton buyer up to his connection with the swindle the other was an educated man and somewhat noted for having been mixed up in crooked dealings he was a lawyer but not practicing law for a livelihood the reader should remember that number one was an ex-railroad agent and telegraph operator and had been employed as such up to about one year and a half before he became engaged in this cotton swindle he had become thoroughly familiar with the railroad system of receiving and handling cotton number two who lived in dallas was also familiar with the buying and selling and value of cotton as well as the customary way of obtaining cash from the banks on bills of lading for the same number three was the reputable cotton buyer or broker before mentioned in this story he also lived in dallas the arrests at dallas added greatly to the excitement which was caused by the incarceration of number four and number one the night before 
the prisoners all waived preliminary hearings and were committed to jail in default of bail to wait the action of the grand jury which convened a month or six weeks later in the meantime three of the defendants succeeded in getting bonds and were released from jail my recollection now is that the bonds were fixed at ten thousand dollars each number three was taken sick immediately after his arrest and continued to steadily grow worse until he died which was about two months after he was arrested number one and number two almost immediately after they had been released on bonds fled the country number one going to old mexico and number two seeking refuge in london ontario canada when the cases were called for trial in court at dallas texas number one and number two failed to appear and their bonds were declared forfeited number three having died his bond of course was not forfeited number four it appears either did not try to procure bail or if so did not succeed as he remained in jail meanwhile i was employed in procuring duplicates of the bills of lading which had been issued and sold to the purchasers of the cotton which caused me to visit the cities of philadelphia new york providence rhode island and fall river massachusetts the procuring of these duplicates proved no easy task but i finally obtained certified copies of all of them these duplicates were to be used as evidence at the trial i was at dallas on the date set for the trial and on learning of the absence of the defendants and that the court had postponed the trial of number four he being the only one within the reach of the court i at once reported the situation to the railroad officials at st louis in reply to which i received instructions by wire from vice president hoxie of the missouri pacific to proceed at once to locate and arrest the fugitives and take them back to dallas and there to turn them over to the proper authorities so that they may be dealt with according to law upon receipt of these instructions i detailed operatives bailey and herbert of my staff to locate and arrest number one which they succeeded in doing after a lot of hard and good work they arrested him at gaimas old mexico this city is located on the pacific coast they brought their prisoner back to dallas and lodged him in jail i had assumed the task of locating number two after considerable work i discovered that he was in london canada which is just one hundred miles east of detroit michigan i visited london where i saw number two without being seen by him he would have known me at sight as it was i who had arrested him in dallas i found that he had surrounded himself with a number of sympathizing friends in london many of whom were fugitives from injustice from the united states as he was many of them he among them had money and felt safe while on canadian soil the extradition treaty then in force between great britain and the united states was known as the ashburton and webster treaty and was passed i believe in eighteen forty four this treaty only permitted the extradition of fugitives charged with one of seven crimes murder felonious assault with intent to murder arson rape forgery uttering of forged paper and perjury after i had seen number two in london i communicated the facts by wire code to mr hoxie he giving my report to ex-governor john c brown the general solicitor for the gould system of railroads his headquarters were in the same building with mr hoxie's at st louis governor brown was thoroughly conservant with this case and had a national reputation as a lawyer and when told by mr hoxie of the whereabouts of number two he at once wired me by code to try my best to induce number two to accompany me across the line of canada into either michigan or new york state if i succeeded in getting him across the boundary line i could hold him in either state until extradition papers could be secured from the governor of texas from the instructions governor brown had wired me i was satisfied that the governor was not familiar with the statutes of canada pertaining to extradition if i had attempted to induce the fugitive across the canada line for the purpose of arresting him without legal authority i would be subjecting myself to prosecution for kidnapping 
if convicted of that charge under the canadian statutes i would have been sent to prison for a term of from two to seven years knowing that it was impossible for me to obey governor brown's instructions i employed a young attorney or barrister as they are called in canada whose name was mcbride and while he had been practicing law but a few years he was recommended to me very highly for his ability and integrity during my consultation with him i explained to him fully that the bills of lading which had been used in the cotton swindle had been signed by the company's agent in blank and then turned over by the agent to number two in blocks number two had then filled out each blank for various numbers of bales of cotton setting forth the number of bales and the weight of each bale in the regular way he then turned the bills of lading thus prepared by him over to number three whom the reader will remember was a cotton buyer number three placed these bills of lading in various banks at sherman dallas and other texas towns he drew cash from the banks for the face value less ten per cent for the purpose heretofore stated after explaining all this to mr mcbride i asked him what crime these men had committed under the statutes of canada he promptly answered without even referring to the statutes that under the canadian law they were all guilty of forgery and having uttered and published forged paper including the company's agent who had signed each of these bills as agent i said supposing these men had fled from the united states and were found in canada could they be arrested and extradited back to the united states for trial yes he said they surely could under the provisions of the ashburton and webster treaty which provides for the extradition of fugitives who are legally charged with the crime of forgery or of uttering and publishing forged paper but i said mr mcbride the company's agent signed these bills of lading he replied i understand from you that the agent had received no cotton i answered yes he received no cotton then said mr mcbride the agent signed the bills of lading for fraudulent purposes and therefore his signature was authorized by the company who employed him and under the canadian law he is a forger while the other conspirators would be guilty of uttering and publishing forged paper the penalty would be just as severe for the latter offense under the canadian law as it would be for forgery i neglected to state that after i had located number two at london ontario the railroad company's attorneys were informed by the judge who presided over the criminal court at dallas texas that in his opinion the fraudulent bills of lading heretofore described were not forgeries as they had been signed by the company's agent and for this reason i presume governor brown instructed me as he did he knowing that the fugitive number two could not be extradited from canada unless we could substantiate a charge for forgery against him no doubt at the time governor brown believed the ruling of the texas judge was correct all of which i fully explained to mr mcbride to which he replied a texas judge has no jurisdiction in canada and his opinion or construction of our law would amount to nothing here and if you find any fugitive from the united states in canada who has been connected with the swindle you will have to identify them as being the right parties and then set forth the manner in which the swindle was enacted and the amount of money or property secured by the swindlers and it does not make any difference what name the texas statutes or the texas judge gives the crime committed in the manner you have described to me it would be forgery here you must understand that you must comply with the requirements of the canadian laws in order to extradite a fugitive from canada if you should find your fugitive here in london you can if you desire go to any other county or city in the province of ontario and make your complaint have a warrant issued for the arrest of the fugitive bring an officer from that county or city to serve the warrant arrest him here and take him immediately before the magistrate who issued the warrant and have the prisoner committed to jail for two weeks without bail at the expiration of the two weeks should you desire an additional two weeks 
you can secure same by convincing the magistrate that you are unable to secure the presence of the necessary witness to substantiate the identity of the prisoner and his connection with the swindle our law will allow you these continuances after the prisoner has had his preliminary hearing if the testimony offered should be sufficient to satisfy the magistrate he would then fix the bond at the amount of four times the amount involved in the swindle which would be in this case nearly one half million dollars after mcbride had finished his foregoing advice to me i thanked him and paid him his fee which was only ten dollars and went to chatham ontario chatham is the county seat about fifty miles west of london and just halfway between london and detroit michigan i found the queen's counsel at chatham to whom i fully explained my case whereupon he verified and approved the advice i had received from mr mcbride of london i at once filled the necessary complaint and procured a warrant for the arrest of number two the warrant was addressed and given to the chief of police of chatham who accompanied me back to london where i pointed out the fugitive to him we arrested him immediately and took him to chatham where he was locked up as a fugitive and his hearing set for two weeks later in accordance with the canadian law the reader will remember that when i first located number two in london he was surrounded by newly found friends there a number of whom were fugitives like himself for this reason i felt it prudent to begin legal proceedings against him in a country where both he and i were strangers and avoid the annoyance and trouble which his sympathizing fugitive friends were sure to cause as soon as number two was safely lodged in jail i wired governor brown at st louis missouri stating that i had arrested and locked up number two on the charge of being a fugitive from the state of texas united states of america that the hearing was set for two weeks later and that while passing through st louis on my way to texas i would stop over long enough to report in person to him in about two hours i received his reply which was a severe reprimand and read as follows why did you disobey my instructions when you knew that i had instructed you as to what the texas judge had decided and therefore the fugitive could not be extradited from canada under the existing treaty nor in accordance with the act of congress which provides for said treaty answer signed john c brown to which i answered as follows honorable john c brown general solicitor missouri pacific railroad company st louis missouri i disregarded your instructions finding them erroneous and that you did not understand the law pertaining to this case having also learned that a texas judge's ruling are not considered in canada as i find that i can legally extradite the fugitive from canada under the present law signed thomas furlong after sending the above message i borrowed a copy of the revised statutes of canada from the crown counsel who would be called prosecuting attorney in the united states he marked each section of the statutes which pertain to our case i at once put the book in my grip and started for st louis arriving there the following morning i immediately reported to vice president hoxie whom i found in his office after the usual greeting mr hoxie said to me tom governor brown showed me a message that he had received from you yesterday he appeared to be quite angry to which i replied i am here to explain my actions fully and i wish you would kindly request governor brown to come to your office at his convenience as i think my explanation should be made to him in your presence so that one explanation may serve both my time is limited as i must go to texas and procure certain witnesses and return with them to chatham ontario within two weeks the time set for the hearing whereupon mr hoxie sent for governor brown who appeared in a few moments after the usual salutation i repeated the instructions i received from him i then stated that i had found it impossible for me to have carried out the instructions in canada without subjecting myself to prosecution and probably a sentence to the penitentiary and i therefore concluded to do the next best thing 
which was to employ a competent attorney who advised me as to my rights and how to proceed legally under the laws of that country i then produced the copy of the statutes which i had borrowed from the crown council and directed governor brown's attention to the marked sections before mentioned which he carefully read after he had finished i produced and read the telegram i had received from him at the same time calling his attention to the question he had asked me to answer in his message he then compared his message with the one he had received from me in dignified silence and then without a word handed the two messages to mr hoxie near whose chair he was standing mr hoxie read them and then looked up at the governor and said governor what do you think of this matter for answer governor brown deliberately walked around the table to where i was sitting and extended his hand to me and i arose and took it he turned to mr hoxie and said in a pleasant manner furlong was right all the way through then turning to me he said furlong you ought to have been a lawyer i was a little angry when i received your message yesterday but i see it was all right as you only answered the questions i had asked you i left st louis for dallas that night and while there i arranged with the chief of police jim arnold and other well-known citizens to accompany me to chatham ontario as witnesses in the case pending against number two these witnesses had all known number two for years and were familiar with his reputation as to truth and veracity his business connections etc the witnesses and myself arrived in chatham in time for the hearing of number two the judge after hearing the evidence committed number two to jail without bail to await extradition papers from the president of the united states and the governor-general of canada number two was defended in the hearing by two noted barristers who at once appealed to a higher court in due time the appeal was argued and the action of the lower court sustained whereupon number two's counsel had the case taken up in the privy court at toronto this court affirmed the action of the lower courts and it being the highest tribunal in canada its decision was final and number two was committed without bail for extradition i immediately left toronto for washington d c having already received the necessary papers from the state of texas i presented these to the department of justice in washington on the evening of my arrival there and they were promptly approved and sent to president cleveland for his signature by the way these papers were the first of their kind ever signed by president cleveland it being but four days after his inauguration for his first term as president of the united states the papers were delivered to me and i left for chatham ontario for the purpose of taking number two back to dallas texas for trial and bearing the commission of president cleveland to do so the following day the train on which i was riding stopped twenty minutes at canandaigua new york for dinner as i was eating my dinner a messenger boy called out my name at the dining-room door i answered and he handed me a telegram which was from the high sheriff at chatham and read as follows when my jailer went to the cell occupied by number two at twelve o'clock today he found him dead had apparently been dead an hour cause of death yet unknown probably heart failure i wired him that i would be in chatham on the following morning on my arrival there a post-mortem autopsy was made of the body of number two and it developed that he had committed suicide by taking laudanum the sheriff and the jailer have never been able to satisfy themselves as to how number two got possession of the poison he had friends and relatives who lived in jackson michigan who called on chatham and identified the body and took it to jackson for burial i then returned to dallas texas so as to be present at the trial of number one and number four they being the only two of the swindlers left for trial when i had first arrested the swindlers and placed them in jail at dallas the prosecuting attorney called me to his office and told me that the defendants had employed a number of the most able attorneys at that bar to defend them and he said that he thought that the railroad company ought to permit him to select an attorney to assist him in the prosecution of the defendants i told him that i had no doubt but that the general solicitor brown would do so if he would make the request of him 
he replied that as long as i was going direct to st louis that he wished me to make the request for him which i did when i delivered his request to governor brown he replied that captain tom brown of sherman texas was the railroad company's attorney in that district an able lawyer and he would be glad to instruct him to assist the prosecuting attorney in every way he could or he would furnish him any other of the company's attorneys in texas should he believe their assistance necessary and that he would take it up with the prosecuting attorney at dallas and make all the necessary arrangements i communicated these facts to the prosecuting attorney later governor brown informed me that he the prosecuting attorney had selected a lawyer to assist him who was not in any way connected with the railroad service and that he had suggested that this assistant should be paid a fee of five or six thousand dollars by the railroad company for his services governor brown further stated that the attorney selected for an assistant was not looked upon with favor by either himself or any of his assistants some of the assistants connected with the legal department of the railroad company under general solicitor brown refused to associate themselves with the cases if the man selected by the prosecuting attorney was connected in any way with them his services were refused and captain tom brown went to dallas for the purpose of assisting in the prosecution of the two remaining accused swindlers i had turned the duplicate bills of lading over to captain brown and on the morning of the trial of number one and number four he placed these papers in his overcoat pocket with other documentary evidence he was a little late and hastened into the dining-room leaving his coat and hat on a rack in the corridor of the hotel when he finished his breakfast and returned to his overcoat he discovered the papers had been stolen when the cases were called into court the prosecuting attorney asked for a null prosecute be entered into the cases thus letting two of the principals in the swindle go free thus ended the cotton swindle the most gigantic swindle of this kind that had ever taken place in the united states or i believe in any other country up to that time captain tom brown was afterwards elected as judge of the supreme branch of texas and was always esteemed as an able jurist and a thorough gentleman End of chapter 5